the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. We will right afterwards uh, have a brief time of Q&A, as we often do, just a way for us to process and digest the things that we learn from scripture. Uh, so if you have any questions, jot them down. I'm happy to talk through them. Any questions, fair game, as always. And we're continuing in our series called The Questions of Jesus, where we're taking one question that Jesus poses to different people that he encounters on the roadside or his disciples or the crowds, and we understand them to be questions not just for then and there and them, but for us as well. And so as we look at another question today, uh, let's pause first and say a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Jesus, it's a joy to gather around your word. And we ask that you would in this time pry open our hearts and minds, cut through whatever is rote and overly routine, uh, enliven wherever there might be deadness, uh, break through whatever resistance we might have, uh, wake us up wherever we might be spiritually in slumber, uh, humble us wherever we might be spiritually proud and unfeeling, soften us where we might be hardened, encourage us, where we feel most deeply discouraged today. So Jesus, uh, we're asking a lot of you, but we're doing this because you told us to expect much of your word when it is lifted up. And only you, Holy Spirit, can do all these things. So come, inhabit your word, dwell amongst your people, and speak to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I recently read a story about a, a man who was on a vacation trip in the Florida Keys together with his girlfriend. And as the story goes, one day while he was snorkeling together with her, he felt a tender grasp of his hand and together they gazed for some time with amazement at the coral and the colorful schools of of fish below and all around them. And then about 30 minutes later, he glanced over at his girlfriend and her red swimsuit. Wait a minute, she was wearing a blue swimsuit. Wait, wait a minute, that's not startled. He jerked his hand back, if you can imagine his surprise. The woman exclaims, what the, you're not my husband. And without a second glance or a second word, she quickly swam away as it suddenly dawns on the guy that for the last half hour, he'd been snorkeling and holding hands with a complete stranger. I don't know if you've ever had yourself any kind of moment or embarrassing encounter like that. An embarrassing case 
of mistaken identity. And wouldn't it be far worse if the mix-up weren't just a mistaken girlfriend during a snorkeling trip, but rather a, a mistaken, say, paramedic during a medical emergency? Wait, you're not. And wouldn't it maybe be far worse if the mix-up were a mistaken savior, a mistaken God? Jesus wants to make sure his disciples know who they're snorkeling with. So he asks them a pair of probing questions. First, in effect, who do they say I am? And then he turns to them, secondly, who do you say I am? The first question is fairly straightforward. In the second half of verse 13, he asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is, referring to himself? Maybe it's understandable that this question about Jesus' identity comes up right here in the narrative. After all, Jesus and his crew are right now traveling through Caesarea Philippi, we're told at the top of the passage. This is a non-Jewish district north of Israel that was known for its religious pluralism. The city at one point was the center of the worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And then later it was renamed after the Greek god of the forest, Pan, and then it was later renamed after the Roman ruler, Caesar Augustus, who was, of course, worshipped as a deity himself, and also the Jewish ruler, Herod Philip, hence Caesarea Philippi. And perhaps this background got Jesus thinking about the wide range of ways that people related to God, to God and the wide range of ways that people would have viewed him. So... Who do people say that I am? We're told in verse 14, the disciples replied, uh, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now you may understand that all the people they named here were prophets from earlier times. John the Baptist, with his ministry of repentance, prepared people's hearts for Jesus' arrival. He was later executed by Herod. Elijah was the great Old Testament prophet. Many people in Jesus' day believed that he would be the messenger who would herald God's final coming, according to the prophet Malachi. Jeremiah was another Old Testament prophet who offered hope to God's people of future restoration and liberation. See, all the prophets that they had listed, in fact, they were all the all-star prophets that were most on these oppressed people's minds. All these prophets, it was believed in Jesus' day, would return one day and aid in the liberation of the people of Israel from their political oppression under Rome. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, and all the rest. These were the wrong answers, you might say, to Jesus' question, of course, 
They were popular, if misguided, views about Jesus in his day. But what about ours? We have our own version of this response, of course. Popular views of Jesus that are just as tempting for us to embrace. Who do people say that I am? Well, in our day, uh, some say Jesus is what you might describe as a, a spiritual sage. Uh, someone who taught a lot of inspirational quotes about peace and love that can be easily and nicely posted on Instagram. Others might say, no, he's, he's, a, he's a cultural protector whose sole job it is to keep us safe from the bad influences of a corrupting world. Still others would say in so many words, no, no, he's more like a water boy. You know, one that you go to once in a while when you're tired and thirsty from play on the field. He hits you up with some spiritual Gatorade and a pep talk, but then he sends you back on the field to win or lose the game all by yourself. Some these days seem to look at Jesus like a political liberator whose sole agenda is to free us from the clutches of the religious right or whose sole agenda is to free us from woke liberals. But the funny thing, of course, is that in both cases, this Jesus somehow always agrees with your political agenda in its entirety, line by line, and there's never any shortage of Bible verses to prove it. Of course, there's also this view, some saying Jesus is something like a secret savior who listens vaguely to your prayers, offers you a vague sense of forgiveness, who sometimes is vaguely disappointed in you, and like a secret Santa, the secret savior sometimes pops up and gives you nice little gifts anonymously, of course, he's that distant but all you're left with is a vague sense of a vague Jesus with a vague spiritual life. I don't know if there's others that you might fill in, popular views that are quite attractive, perhaps, to each of us, views of Jesus that maybe we unwittingly slide into, adopt, and embrace, popular views of the Christian faith. The problem with these is not only that they are distortions, incomplete portrayals of Jesus that are only loosely related to the actual Jesus of the Bible. The problem is also that they are thoughtlessly and indiscriminately borrowed views of Jesus. We're just taking on whatever it is that they think he is. Whether if the they is your family's tradition. Well, this is just what we've always believed. Or this is what my parents believed before me. Or maybe it's your peers. Uh, this is what it is that's in the water in my school or in my workplace or in our city. Uh, and, of course, there's the threat of being pushed out or being scorned as someone that believes, uh, uh, well, terrible things. That makes it even more tempting to give in to what you might say is religious peer pressure. 
there's the borrowed views that we find in different political tribes, different spiritual tribes, different peoples. The point is, is that our view of who Jesus is, what he did, and what he stood for so often is more shaped by our media habits, by our peers, and by our surrounding culture than it is by scripture itself. Which is to say it's shaped more by those other things and other people than it is by Jesus himself. Our view of him is almost fully based on what others have told us he is, and we've never actually or rarely actually find ourselves doing the hard work of reading the Bible and listening to Jesus' own claims about what he came to do and who he promises to be for you and for me. And in this moment, I also want to note that in this day, it's so common, so common for many professing Christians to define themselves by what they are not, as more and more fraudulent approaches to the Christian faith seem to be on full public display. I'm not that kind of Christian, they say. And maybe you find yourself saying that as well, but here's the problem. They or you may know what they are not, but they also then don't know what they truly are. Because critiquing wrong views of Jesus and knowing what they say about him isn't the same thing as confessing true views about Jesus and knowing what you say and believe about him. Jesus draws near to us with all the gentleness and truthfulness of the Savior, saying to us, saying to you and me today, I know who they say I am, but who do you say I am? And this is the second question, the primary question that Jesus raises before us. He reminds us that each of us, every one of us, must answer this question for ourselves. Verse 15, but what about you, he asks? Who do you say I am? And everything in the original construction of the ancient Greek text emphasizes the you. But you, 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 who do you say I am? Simon Peter's answer, of course, is a most stunning declaration. He answers, you are the Messiah the promised king, the deliverer that was long hoped for for generations among God's people, the one who would save not only individuals, but indeed the whole world, in fact, the whole cosmos, from all the terrorism of sin and evil. This is the hoped-for Messiah, the king not only of Israel, but through Israel of the whole world. And almost as if to immediately make sure that it's clear what he is confessing and what he is not. He adds, the son of the living God. 
As if to clarify, he's not speaking simply of the popular political notions of that day of what a Messiah might be. A mere political deliverer of God's people from under oppression under Rome. He says, no, there's more to it than that. It's not less than that, but it's more. This Messiah himself is not mere man, mere warrior, mere conqueror, mere deliverer, but he is himself God. In fact, the son of the living God. Peter's confession is a, a startling one when read in context these bumbling disciples who seemed to never understand who Jesus really was, even when he explicitly told them exactly who he was. And yet here it is, Jesus receiving this confession. Is this who Jesus is to you? When Jesus asks you, who do you say I am? Shed of the pressures of your peers, shed of the swirl of views about me from the culture, even cultural expressions of Christianity, shed of all these other popular notions around me, when I ask you, who do you say I am, does your confession come close to that of Peter's? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And perhaps you say, well, sort of, in so many terms, but what exactly do you mean by Messiah and the Son of God? Well, there's much that we could say in unpacking that term. It's a catchphrase, of course, identifying Jesus as all that the Bible promised that God would be for us in his Son. Will you confess together with Scripture that he is all that he has promised to be for us in his life, in his death, in his resurrection? Who is he? Scripture tells us he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the source of all life. He is our advocate who pleads the case for our forgiveness before the throne of God. He is the author and perfecter of our faith who upholds our belief, our souls in seasons of doubt and trial. He's the bread of life who gives spiritual food, indeed even life, to the spiritually hungry. He is himself the beloved of God, a fountain of never-ending, unbreakable triune love. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who will conquer all sin and every evil power and structure in principality with a mighty roar. He's the bridegroom, who offers joyful, loyal, sacrificial, covenantal, spousal service to you and me, his people. He's the chief cornerstone, he says, the immovable foundation upon which our lives and our salvation are built. He's our deliverer who saves us from the wrath of God and from all the horrors of sinful humanity. He's the good shepherd, don't you know, who leads us to green pastures, protects us, provides us for us, and lays down his life for his sheep. The word tells us he's also the head of the church, 
the one who leads and guides the body, his people. He's our high priest who pours out sympathetic grace upon our weaknesses and our sufferings. He's the judge of the living and the dead, to whom every one of us will one day give an account. He's the Lamb of God who died in our place as our substitute for our sins on the cross. He's the intercessor who ever lives and prays for us, his people, day to day and hour after hour. He's the light of the world who overcomes the darkness. He's our hope who promises to make all things new and all dead things alive. He's our rock who cannot and will not ever be shaken. He is our redeemer who rescues us from all kinds of bondage. He's the resurrection in whom we too will be raised indestructible on the last day. He's the true vine, the one who prunes and intimately abides in us. He is our vindicator who will one day expose all falsehoods told about him and us. He is our friend who walks with us daily and shares with us his heart. He's the way, the truth, and the life who enables us to know the living God. He's the Messiah, the King of grace. He is Jesus. He is Jesus. He is Jesus. Who do you say I am? Says the Savior. It's not a rhetorical question. Have you enumerated the things that you've come to know, treasure, love, and bow down to about this Jesus? Have you answered that question in detail lately? Because you know the truth is, it's possible to go a long time, even years, without actually spelling out that answer in your heart. In fact, too many professing Christians live with little more than a, a vague impression of who Christ is. Perhaps for you it's true that it's, it's been months or, or, or maybe years that, that you've been snorkeling along only recently to realize that this whole time you've been with a stranger. And too many people who are searching for God, maybe that's you today, who never really get past the caricatures of Jesus that maybe you've picked up from the culture, from the media, from your friends. Who do you say that I am? You young people, too, because too many Christian youth leave home for work or college only to realize that they've leaned wholly on their family's traditions and never answered that question for themselves. Who do you say I am? And so I invite you today to consider the question, to meditate upon it. And maybe even write down some things upon your heart. Journal about it. And to search the scriptures even. 
maybe using some of the, the titles and descriptions of God that I laid out just a few minutes ago, things that the Bible says about him, which of course was the source that Peter turned to, not looking around him for the answer of who Jesus is, but looking within God's word, not just looking in his own heart, asking who do I feel he is, but who is he in fact, according to God's word. Spend some time this week knowing what you know and saying, even out loud, what your answer to that question truly is. Before we finish here, I want to point out that Jesus tells us more than just this more than just raises a question and gives us a hint of an answer through the words of prayer, he also indicates to us that this question can only be answered rightly if we have in place two support structures or two ingredients that need to be in the mix in order for us to generate and sustain such true confessions about Christ. And those two things that we find in this passage and the remainder of it are this, the supernatural help of God, and secondly, this personal support of the church. You notice the minute that Peter confesses, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus replies in verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, Peter, gosh, what school did you go to? He doesn't say, you're, you're just so naturally brilliant. He says, there's no way you could have said that, known that, apart from God breaking into your heart, interrupting your mind, giving you truth to savor. Peter, this was a work of God. That you can say true things about me. In other words, to know true answers about to the question, who do you say I am? Jesus tells us, you need God's help. You need the Holy Spirit. You need him to lift up the veil of our own flesh, the veil of our own resistance, so that we might finally see rightly. And more than just seeing rightly, to have right affections, responses of the soul towards what it is that we see of him. Loving the beauty that we behold. Receiving the truth that is revealed to us. Not simply assenting to the knowledge that we discover. After all, Jesus isn't a thing to be described and analyzed. He's a person to be known and loved. But we need the supernatural help of God, which means, of course, as we investigate answers to this question, as we seek to unpack what it is the Bible tells us about Jesus and who he is and what he came to do, as we seek to refresh our own hearts or perhaps discover him for the first time, may we do so on our knees in prayer, confessing again and again, God, I can't know you. Jesus, I cannot see you. I cannot receive you rightly unless you help me know you, see you, love you confess true things about you. We need the supernatural help of God. And secondly, we need the personal support of the church. We can't sustain true confession about Christ apart 
from the support of the community of Christ. Because the pressures are too strong, the temptations too en enduring, the resistance of our own heart and flesh too unrelenting for us to think that we can do this on our own. We need the church. We need not just being a, a, a member in the abstract of a thing called church. We need to be a part of the gathering of God's people week in and week out, right here on Sunday mornings and even midweek in different forms of fellowship and connection with other people. Because again, this is not just about religious exercise. This is about confessional survival and spiritual sustenance, perseverance. We need to be in the midst of the gathered people of God, which is actually what the word church means. It's an, it's an assembly, a gathering of the people that have been called out by God. This is not simply a word about church attendance or Sunday morning worship. It's not less than that. It is that, but it's more. How else are you going to make it? How else are you going to make it? And Jesus gives us such a glorious picture of what this church is. He says in verse 18 to 19, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and on the gates of Hades, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus takes Peter's name, which is rock, it means rock, and he does a wordplay on it and says, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter, and the other disciples. As the Bible says again and again in Ephesians 2 and Revelation 21 and other places, the church is built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. I will build my church on you and this confession, and it will be a flawed church, Peter who would even just days after this deny Jesus to be built on this rock would make it a flawed community and yet a triumphant one. The gates of Hades will not overcome it, a picture of the church advancing against the forces of darkness and of death. And to say, as Jesus is saying, that that, that even the strongest resistance of evil and darkness will be prevailed upon. Will, it will not successfully thwart the purposes of God and his grace. So triumphant is the church, even in the midst of human sin, failures, and flaws. The church is where we sustain our confession, our knowledge of Christ and our commitment to him. The church is where we find authoritative expressions of love. Where Jesus says, I will give you in the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Which is, in so many words, showing that what happens in the life of the church is a true expression of spiritual reality as it happens in heaven. 
when people are truly saved in Christ, their names are written in heaven, and we see that expressed and reflected in the ways that names are written in real flesh and blood community here on earth. It's almost like you have the real file and then a copy of the file on the, in the cloud, and whatever adjustments you make in one place happens in the other. In the same way, Jesus says, what you let into the church, I also let into my kingdom. And what is expelled or, or, or banished from my kingdom is also the same in the church. There's a, a doorway into the kingdom of God that is furnished in the life of the church. It's an incredible claim that we can unpack further to believe that the church really is the portal, the doorway the way to life and God, to heaven itself. And so it should be no surprise then that the church would be the place where we find personal support and sustenance, life and death sustenance for our confidence and our confession of Christ. Who do you say I am? And do you know that the true answers to that question, Christ our Savior, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is discoverable only by the help of God, revealed to us by the Father, and sustained in the context of community. So dear friends, who is it that you're snorkeling with? Whether if you've been walking with Jesus, swimming with him, for a long time, or you are only now finding him for life? Is it a stranger, or is it the Savior that's been revealed in his word? What is your answer? Who do you say I am? Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you and ask that you would do good to us in giving us the joy of knowing you as all that you promised to be. As we said, the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, the advocate, the lover of our souls, our deliverer, our shepherd, our king, our high priest, our intercessor, everything that you've promised to be for us, will you make these things true or true all over again for us. I pray for spiritual renewal for every person in this church, this summer, this week, this day. And if it's not that the answers suddenly click or drop down into their, to their hearts in a powerful way, if that doesn't immediately happen, I pray at least that you would turn up the hunger for these things. You would bring them to their knees in seeking answers to these things and longing for more of Christ, more of Christ, more of Christ. And the best news is you generously give yourself to us. Help us to believe that, that you're ready and able to give us more and more and more. We pray this in Christ's name. Let me give you a moment to quietly ponder and pray, and then we'll have a little time of Q&A.